Welcome to After the Bell with your host, Laura. This podcast is a series of conversations with educators, leaders, and lifelong learners with the hope of deconstructing some of the stereotypes around education. My objective as a teacher is to focus on the passion, humanity, and hope around education and to provide a platform for the myriad of voices that have something to say and teach us all. If you would like to know more about me, please head to my Instagram page at educatinglaura. Hello everyone, welcome to the podcast today. I thought I would actually reintroduce myself because we are nearing a year of the podcast on the 8th of the 8th will be a year since I published the first episode and so I am Laura, I'm a secondary educator in Melbourne. I primarily teach English and biology and based on that I often get a lot of junior science and things to teach as well. I'm a mum of two coming back into the workforce after about four, three and a half, four years of maternity leave, doing just emergency teaching. And so this is my first year in four years having my own classes again. Great year to come back considering we have had 2020 remote learning and there's just a whole gamut of things that educators are facing this year, including issues with stamina and persistence and the conversation that I've recorded with Lisa, who you're about to hear from, we were in the middle of a lockdown, the two-week lockdown in Melbourne. And I want to just say for all of those other states, including Sydney right now, that are in the middle of either coming out of lockdowns or having precarious situations around lockdowns, we as Victorians know what that's like. And I would like to extend my compassion and empathy and, yeah, really just thinking about you because I know that it can be a real challenge. And especially for people in New South Wales that are missing out their holidays. I don't know that that's a hard one too. When you're looking forward to being social or at least having a bit of freedom. So I am, as I said, thinking of you. This conversation with Lisa, I'm very, very grateful to have been introduced to Lisa through Nathan. Now, Nathan Vandermon has been on two conversations with me. His first solo one was from secondary to primary. And then the next one was a roundtable conversation that I was very privileged to have with Mr. J's Learning Space, Mr. Johnson, Aaron Johnson, and The Right Classroom, which is Serena Wright, who are just incredible educators. And I do encourage you to check those episodes out if you have not already. But it is through Nathan that I connected with Lisa and was made aware of Lisa. And I'm so grateful for that opportunity to chat with her because she is a wellbeing advocate. She is all about student agency. She's an incredible educational leader she throws herself into everything 100 percent looks at the research analyzes information critically and ensures that it is the best thing for her students and for her school and i just love how open and kind she is and it's funny in this conversation i felt very supported by her because she acknowledges how challenging it is as a young parent with young children to try and do the big juggle of work and doing a good job and being there for your kids and I just really appreciate sometimes having someone that bit further down the journey giving me some insight and wisdom and she certainly did that if you enjoy the conversation please share it on social media tag me at educating laura and lisa at red poppies underscore class if you're not following her please make sure that you go and do that 
If you'd like to support the podcast, feel free to buy me a virtual coffee. That is information in the show notes. Otherwise, just sit back, listen and enjoy because I'm sure that there are lots of pearls in here, pearls of wisdom for you and another conversation that I'm incredibly proud of. Hello, Lisa. It's so lovely to have you here. How are you? Oh, I'm really well. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure and an honour. Oh, I'm so excited. I put up today when you posted on your stories that we were recording that I've had a bit of a hiatus. It's been over a month or so since I've recorded, so I'm so excited to come back to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I think, um, you know, heading into the end of term, it's a it's kind of a nice way to finish off, especially when we've had the tumultuous one that we've had. It's good to be able to celebrate, I think. Yes. As two Melbourne educators, if anyone is unsure, the... Well, two-week lockdown and we're still kind of finding a way out at the moment, really. It's not quite – we've got – I don't know about your school, but we've got like you can't do any like choir practice, you can't sing. So it's still quite restrictive. What have you still got happening at your school? Well, uh, we can't participate in inter-school sports at the moment. So Mm. we were meant Mm -hmm. to – that had been um, delayed because of – COVID uh, because of the latest lockdown. So that, yeah, that's been postponed now to the beginning of next term. Our school production is having to be reimagined at the moment because right. even even if we could do it, you know, this is a, a primary school of 450 children. So that's, you know, probably 270 or so families and we, yeah. we can't have a venue that's going to seat everyone. So you know, know, it's it's all about reimagining and pivoting and finding alternatives for lots of different things at the moment. I remember last year, I think Adelaide had like a five-day or six-day lockdown last year and I was following a teacher who did the production and it just so happened to be their production week. So they'd done everything and the whole, the whole thing got cancelled. It was so devastating to see things like that just not go ahead and there's nothing you can do. No, that's right. And I think you think the amount of work that has gone in for the teachers, the parents, the students, the whole community, it's um mm-hmm. it's a massive impact. A massive impact. And I know that, that, you know, even having to reimagine graduations at the end of the year last year yeah. for primary and secondary schools, like that was huge. And and mm-hmm. you know, we really had to pull things out of the out of the hat to make those things happen and still be special. That's right. That's right. And look, it just does go to show what can be done and how much teachers are willing to do Mm. to commemorate those things well, right? You know, you never want them to go off and not feel appreciated and celebrated. No, that's right. And I think that's, you know, that's the really important thing, isn't it? And I know for me last year I was teaching grade six, but I also had a daughter in year 12. So I was feeling it from both perspectives. And and so, you know, when we were coming up with possible solutions for the grade six graduation, you know, I would I would stand up for the parents and I would say, no, we need to do this because it's their moment as well. It's not just yeah. the student's moment, but it is the parents' moment. It's the community's moment. And it really deserved to be celebrated. And I know we had a, a virtual ceremony for our parents. So all we had all the students at school, but we had a really, really special night with them and they all got up and they spoke every student in grade six to a, a minute speech um, about their time at primary school. And um, and the parents could watch it from home. And, um, yeah. you know, there were certainly some technical <laughs> things that happened, like people yeah. who forgot to mute and stuff like that. 
<laughs> on a live webex which was quite funny yeah you know it was it was still special for them and and then I know that for my daughter the high school actually postponed it until February mm. and so we actually got to go that was just before that first lockdown that we've had this oh, yeah, year yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we were very lucky yeah 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 we were very lucky to be able to do that but in a way, that was really lovely for those year 12s because they'd all just got their uni placements and things like that. So they could actually all get together that one last time and be able to say, hey, I'm going to be doing this and I'm going to be doing this and um, and really celebrate the end of that chapter yeah. together. So I think you're right. We we do everything we can to make sure these things are special. Yes. That's just the heart in teaching, isn't it? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get to the formal questions because otherwise, as I said, we're going to keep going on and on. So (laughs) your path directly out of school, you did not become a teacher straight away. I'd love to hear what you did. No, teaching wasn't something that really resonated for me when I finished high school. I was, I finished in 1989. So that might help to give you a bit of an idea of how old I am now, but I had done work experience at primary school and I don't know why. I think it was just that I thought, yep, I could do that. That would be, you know, that would be something easy and fun for a week. And and I went and did it and then I really didn't think very much of it. And I was studying music at at high school. My intention was actually to be a music therapist because, yeah, it was I was always interested in the way that music can soothe you and heal you and the holistic benefits that music have. I mean, we all know, you know, if you you need to, sometimes you just need to dance it out, especially during lockdown. <laughs> or, you know, putting some calming music on makes us feel better. Sometimes you just need to scream at the top of your lungs. Um, I think music has so many uh, incredible healing qualities and, and mm. that's what I wanted to do. But you needed to get into the conservatorium and, Although I loved music, I enjoyed studying the history of music and composition and things like that more than I did performing. So okay. I didn't practice a lot, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Yeah. Um, and so my performance let me down. So mm-hmm. I didn't get into music therapy, but I went to TAFE for two years and actually did a performing course, a, an advanced certificate mm-hmm. in music performance. But that was a really good step for me because I was one of the younger students. So my birthday's April. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when I finished high school, I was 17 and a half. I was really young and I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't ready for the big wide world, I don't think. I think I still needed structure. So the TAFE mm. course that I went to offered me great structure, still five classes, you know, like five different subjects a week, classes every day. I still got to perform in ensembles, which that part I loved. I just didn't like playing by myself, but I could still um, I could still study history and composition and things like that. And then after two years there, there was a pathway to Monash Uni. So I took that pathway and I ended up beginning an arts degree at Monash, which then turned into uh, I was one of the very first students who completed the Bachelor of Music at Monash University. So oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so in my arts degree, I majored in music. So I was doing ethnomusicology and I was doing popular music and early music. And I was really, I was very, very much in my um, in my comfort zone there. 
And I actually wasn't doing performance at that time other than playing in ensembles. And I really, really loved that. Also then I got to delve into literature and theatre studies and studying plays and things like that. And I think as a teacher now, I love literacy and I love to teach it. So Mm. that also was something that I really enjoyed too. It took me four years to get through my degree there, which was a three-year degree, because Mm. Again, it was my performing that let me down in that one subject. I just missed out on and I had to go back to do one yeah. subject in that last year. What was your instrument or what is your instrument of choice? Clarinet and saxophone. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm a, a woodwind player. But in in learning early music and things like that there, I actually learned how to play the recorder quite funnily, <laughs> you know, that instrument that people go, Ugh. but there was a guy yeah. there who he was actually – a recorder expert, that was his first instrument. He taught me how to play it properly, like Mm. early music, like, you know, that kind of Baroque style and the style that you hear in the background of um, movies and things like that. And when a recorder is played properly, it is actually breathtaking. It's gorgeous. So, um, Mm. yeah, so I learned lots of, of different skills there. But by the time I finished, I'd been studying for six years out of high school. So the opportunity to do my deep ed was there for me at the end of that time. And I said, no, because I had enough. Yeah, I had enough studying. I was actually engaged to my husband and it was time to live life (laughs) for a while. Mm -hmm. So so I left left uni with my, my degree and, uh, and I ended up working for a music company, Melbourne music company who, ended up becoming um, Australian-wide, called Billy Hyde Music. I worked there for 13 years on and off, and I loved it. I actually worked as an education rep, so I used to go around and visit high schools and primary schools and sell them music and, uh, and instruments and computer programs and things like that. But you yeah. need to have the skills that I'd learned through my degree to be able to do that job well. So... I loved my time there. I have some really incredible friends that I made there. I had both my babies while I was working there and it was a a good job. Yeah. And what I loved about that was that when I went back and I worked two days a week or three days a week when the kids were small, when I finished, I finished and I came home and I didn't have to think about it. And I take my hat off to you and any uh, any other educators who have young children because I don't think I could have done both when my kids were that small. It's really hard, honestly. It's really hard. The juggle is so real and it's, I don't know. I mean, most schools don't want you to do less than three days. Two days would be probably perfect. Mm. It's just, it's a really, really hard juggle because I saw this, I don't know, maybe it was a reel or something recently about how teaching you have to do all your work at home in order to do the job. Like you don't have time during the day at school to prepare to do the job. Mm. You're already doing the job. So everything that happens behind the scenes has to be done outside of school. And I don't think people realise that. It's so you know? everything. So yeah. Yeah. When when you're at school, you're doing the job. So how do you prepare to for that? You know, you think about marketing and all of that and you would have time to prepare those pictures and to plan and at work you would have that time we don't have that time you know and I think most teachers are so passionate that they want to make sure it's good and 
they're not just sort of churning out something from the year before. So we rework things and we, we work a lot. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, and especially when you've got young children to go and pick up at the end of the day, it's not as if you can stay back for an extra hour just to try and smash some things out because you've, you're on a, a time limit. You've got to get somewhere and you've got to pick mm-hmm. them up and you've got to get home and you've got to cook mm-hmm. dinner and all those kinds of things. And, you know, like I know that you work a lot once the kids have gone to bed. And yes, <laughs> you know, eight o'clock. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's hard. It's a hard juggle. It really is. Mm. And I think we need to normalize that a little bit because I think what's very hard for me coming back is that I was always that person that I would just go to all the meetings and I would be there until they finished. And oftentimes people get carried away and 430 hits and they're still going. And I have to be that one saying, I'm sorry, I've got to go because I've mm-hmm. got a pickup. It's really, and it's uncomfortable when you, when you are professional to feel as though maybe you don't look professional when you have to leave because you have a family commitment. It is hard. Mm. Yeah, because I think back to that job that I had and I could start at 9.30 in the morning. So I would drop my kids Mm. off at school. I was there. When the bell went, I said goodbye to them because it took me 20 minutes to get to work. And then I went Mm. and hopped in the car and I got to work by 9.30 and I finished at 3. So I was back there to pick them up. And, you know, and I just think, that was the perfect gig when my kids were little. And so yeah. I, yeah, it's it's interesting because life, you know, not only, mm. not only looking after your kids and trying to be the best teacher you can be, but, you know, when do you get all your life admin done and, and when do you clean your house right. and, you know, all those <laughs> kinds of things. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're, uh, we're not showing you what my house looks like, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> Was any consolation in mine? It's not good either. <laughs> Thank you. It does make you feel better. There's nothing worse than going to someone's house and they look like they've got it all together. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's why I've got these doors. Oh, perfect. I really want to talk about the fact that you wanted to go into music therapy, which I feel like in the early 90s is kind of a left of field avenue. I mean, sound therapy mm. is starting to gain traction now. And I know that you do yeah. yoga teaching and things like that as well. And so I'm wondering where that kind of holistic healing element has come from and why that's so important to you. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I I think about it and I think, yeah, I've drawn from lots of different areas of, of well-being mm. in, in many ways throughout my life. So my mum is, well, was a trained nurse and then she worked in disabilities. So she actually worked at a special school in Melbourne for many, many years. And I watched her and the way that she dealt with the children that were there. So she was an aide to start off with, you know, when we were kids and she'd just go in for lunch times and help feed them. And then um, then she became a, an occupational therapist aide and she would make things and tinker and, and would assist them in different ways. And then she would run, um, she ran this club called the Friday Night Club and it was a disco that was on every Mm. fortnight Mm. and the kids would come, there'd be a DJ and they'd just have a disco. And then I guess from her, as I got older and became a little bit more capable of doing lessons and things like that, like I would go in with percussion instruments and stuff like that and I would run some little workshops. There was someone else that she 
worked with her daughter was the same age as me and she was into drama and the two of us would get together and we'd do like a little music drama workshop kind of thing and we would do that in our holidays sometimes when we were sort of 16, 17. Mm. And so it probably came from there and from watching my mum um, care for people and find ways to make their life better. And and I think that, yeah, that's probably where my real interest from for music therapy came because I saw what it could do for for these kids that mum worked with and yeah I just I knew what it did for me so like I'm I'm definitely a right-brained person mm-hmm. I'm 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 not particularly logical or you know I'm not a, a science maths yeah. kind of person I'm definitely a creative and I, and I guess the, you know all the emotions and the well-being and the wellness and all of that comes from me being that kind of a that kind of a person and that kind of a thinker. So that's where it came from. Like even as I was studying, I would do these little workshops for mum every now and again. And then when I began working at Billy Hyde's, I would conduct bands. So I was actually approached by a musician in Melbourne who he had been like a session musician for years and years. And he said, oh, we're going to start a um, council community band and he goes and I want a little one and I want you to run it and I'm like okay <laughs> so that was probably my first foray into having essentially a whole class in front of me I had a band of children who were all primary school aged and you know I thought well I've played in these bands for years and I've studied this music and I know how to conduct and all these kinds of things so why not I'll give it a go and so that was that was probably my first big whole class teaching experience I loved it absolutely loved it and then from there I actually got one at a, a like a little gig from that at a primary school as well and so then I would teach individual clarinet saxophone lessons at home and then I would do these two bands as well as well as working at Billy Hyde's yeah. and so I think that was the beginning of planting that seed of actually maybe I could be a teacher and maybe this is a way that I can bring all the things that I love into one place and where were you in your life at that time how old were your kids how old were you in terms of you know leaving school and things like that when did you decide that teaching because it seems like it makes sense based on the path you're telling me you've gone down I find mm. it interesting a lot of teachers do tend to be like team players the fact that you like to be part of an ensemble work with other people really collegiate lesson yeah. planning entertaining people all of those things seem to make complete sense as to why you would become a teacher so when did it twig for you that that would be a good idea I had a light bulb mm. moment Tell me all about it. <laughs> I was running um a festival a music festival and it was something that took a good eight months of the year to organise. And I loved it. I really enjoyed it. It was a chance for me to be able to be in contact with teachers, primary school teachers, secondary school teachers, into school, interstate schools would often come. Sometimes we'd get some from overseas as well. Like it was it was a big event to organise and I really enjoyed it. Then we had the business was starting to get bigger and, and they started to bring some middle management mm-hmm. in that we'd never had before. We were always sort of like a real family okay feeling kind of business and this I remember this operations manager coming in and we were in the staff room one day and I was making a cup of tea and he goes so how much money does this festival make Mm, okay and I went this is not about making it's not about making money like we would be lucky to break Mm. even but it's like the ultimate market marketing tool the the actual festival itself 
And this was the 20th year of it. And, and he said, oh, maybe we won't run it next year. Mm. And I went, oh, okay. And I went home and I sat down to have dinner with my husband and I said, I'm going to apply to go back to uni. Yeah. And he said, why? And I said, mm, it's time It's time for me to put my money where my mouth is. You think about it like I, at this stage, I had done a yoga course and I was teaching yoga two nights a mm. week. I had music students. I spent time volunteering at my kids' school listening to them read or doing yoga with them. So my son was in grade four when I was starting to think about this and my daughter was in grade, yeah, grade one. So, yeah, so that's when I really thought, no, actually they're okay now. I could go and do this and we could, I could move forward. I could actually do what to me in my heart was what, I felt I was ready for. Yeah, that's awesome. And it's so hard, isn't it, as a teacher to hear the budget and to hear the money when you know that if you break even, that's great. If you make a slight loss, it's kind of irrelevant because look at the opportunities you are able to provide. And I think it's very hard to kind of reconcile that business priority with education. It's very hard. And I'm sure you've listened to Nathan Vandermond's episode where he talks about the top echelon of the education department are ultimately data analysts and business people. It's a hard one. Yeah, it really is. And I guess with a, you know, like a business like that, that, like I said, had Mm. felt like a big family, they had started to expand and then it did, it became about the money and it wasn't about what our core business was anymore. And I think that whatever I do, I do with heart. And at that moment, I thought mm. it's not there anymore. So where's my heart need to go? So yeah, so I applied for a dip ed. So I'm one of the last few years that we're actually able to do a dip ed because now it's a master's in two years. But I, I think did we it must all have in done a, a dip ed at a similar time mm. because I was I was the same. So when did you do your dip ed? Twenty ten. Okay, so I was oh seven. Tell me about the dip ed. Oh, I loved it. <laughs> I, I actually really loved it because I think because I was coming back to studying after mm. such a long time and my mindset had changed from being a teenager mm. and someone in my early 20s who in many ways was studying because I didn't know what else to do to now I was there because that's what I wanted to do and I wanted to be there and and I wanted to get something out of this. And at the end of the year, I wanted a job and I wanted to be teaching and I wanted a group of kids in front of me, you know, and I wanted to be able to mould them and have relationships and and teach them. And what I found with the dip ed was it was intense, like Mm -hmm. really intense. It was five days a week. It was 8am lectures, I would drop my kids off at my parents' place on a Sunday night so that I could be in Frankston for 8am the next morning because I went to Monash for that as well. And and I loved the campus down Mm -hmm. there. I loved Frankston. It was easy to get to from where I live. I made amazing friends. I've got a core group, there's five of us, and we are still all really close. In fact, we've all been messaging this weekend because of all the um, storms. Yeah, Yeah, of course. (laughs) Yeah, but... Oh, so full on. And there are a couple of them of like one's got a tree over a house. Um, yeah. There's a few without power still because we're all in wow. different different areas up here that are, you know, have been affected. But And this, um, and this storm was Wednesday night just for the listeners and this is mm-hmm. now the following Tuesday. So this is now a week. Mm. It's been 
it's been so full on, hasn't it? Yeah, it really, really yeah. has. Yeah, mm. crazy. We've got quite a few families at school that still don't have power, you know, depending mm. on where they yeah. are. So yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, so I met I met these amazing amazing people, and we had what I liked about that course was that I actually found it was some of the subjects were quite hands on. We mm. had like science subjects and so subjects, so, you know, like a history and geography. Yeah. And they were actually based at a school each week. So we would go to that school, to the gym, we would have our lecture, and then we would spend an hour, an hour and a half, we'd have a small group of kids that we worked with every week. And so we actually developed like a, a whole unit of lessons with them. And that was fantastic. And I thought this, that, especially if you're only doing it in a year, that is the mm-hmm. right way to be able to do it, to be able to be yeah. hands-on as much as possible. But I think that there was also lots of things that were skipped over or not considered perhaps. Like if you think about it, like I work a bit with with graduate teachers now and where do, where do they learn how to deal with parents mm. yeah that <laughs> you know, was gonna be my also- next question for you though like as much as you enjoyed the dip ed mm. what could we be doing better what could be happening better because as you say like we were like the last couple of years that got to do it in mm. one year and to be fair I would have struggled to do a two-year master's because I was at that point where I'd had enough yeah. I'd had enough of being at university. I wanted to get out. And so for me, a dip ed was great like that. And it was, it was, as you said, it was intense and it was full on. But where my headspace was, it was the perfect thing for me to do. Mm. But you've mentored teachers, a number of teachers now too. What do you think would be really beneficial for universities to be doing to prepare teachers better? Do you know what? It's a lot. It's actually a lot of the admin stuff of being a teacher mm-hmm. that you don't know until you're there. So it's being able to manage your time. You know, that is, that's huge when you start. It actually doesn't matter how long you've been teaching. Managing your time is like, you know, the number one issue really, isn't it? Trying to fit everything mm-hmm. in or trying to, to do it well. Yeah, time management, learning how to deal with parents, behaviour management in the classroom, classroom management, all of those things, planning, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, Yes, assignments were all based around planning templates and things like that, but they were unrealistic, let's be honest. Totally, totally, yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely unrealistic, you know. Student teachers, university students, they need to know how to plan a week and and can they do that in a couple of hours, not give them two weeks to do it? Or, you know, Mm. how do you you look at a whole terms unit? Like how do you Mm. break that down and people skills, how to manage mm. people, you know, mandatory reporting, all these kind of things that yeah. are all our bread and butter, all those OHS modules, the mm-hmm. things that we have to do every year. New teachers come into school and they're just like, you know, they're like stunned mullets almost, aren't they? Because yeah. there's so many yep. things and they're all thrown at yep. them right from the mm. beginning. It's a hard one because obviously every school uses different programs, but you know, you've now got Google Classrooms, you've got Compass, you've got Teams, you have OneNote. Our school, all of our planning documents go onto OneNote. And that is a messy program if you mm. don't know how to use it. And there are things everywhere and there's tabs everywhere. And I know it's obviously very hard because 
all schools use different things, but there's so many programs could be thrown at you the minute you get out and reporting, you know, we're just coming out of reporting now. And I actually put up a Instagram story asking whether people do progressive reporting or end of semester. And so many people said to me that they have to do both. Are you kidding? So no, no. And I asked, well, is, does that mean the end of semester is less? And they said, no. So they have to do throughout the semester and then they have to double up that information and add end of semester. I mean, in terms of the time that that takes, mm. I write constant little comments throughout the year. So when it comes to reporting, I've pretty much got my comment done because I always used to find two people that use comment banks, which are great, but they never articulated exactly what I wanted to say for that particular student. So I would always just either, it would take me so long to rewrite them anyway, but things like that, it's, you know, what is expected on a report? I used to get parents ask me about VELS levels back in the day and why is my student a C? Why are they not an A? And I had to then try and articulate to them you know, as, a, as a graduate teacher what we were actually looking for. Mm. And I didn't know what a VELS level was when I left university, you know, all those things. You just don't yeah, know enough. That's so yeah. true. No, I, yeah, I think, you know, yes, they do do lots of assignments and, yes, they do put in curriculum standards and things like that, but they're not necessarily understanding them completely. <laughs> and it, it's funny that you say about this because I remember my very first report yeah. season and I my very first grade was grade five and so there are a lot of progression points. Right. I, I remember getting the Firstly, getting the report writing system, which I can't even remember what it was called now. It's all antiquated now. It doesn't yeah. exist. Yeah. Um, but I do remember the the leading teacher saying to me, and these are your progression points, and me looking at them going, but there's so many. Yeah. yeah. You know, like I had no idea that I had to re- report on every single one of those. And now I can look at it and I could probably just do it, you know, just like that. Mm. I mean, it also helps when you've been in the same year level for a few years yes. and you know what to expect yeah but that first time I remember I think I spent longer on the progression points than I did actually writing the comments because you mulled yep. over every single one mm-hmm. yeah. and I used to find two at high school because like in science I'd only see my students three sessions a week at 45 minutes each that's all I would see them uh, English is five sessions a week and so mm. I wouldn't assess them outside of the progression point I was looking at especially in those earlier years. So if they're doing everything at that progression point, if I haven't given them something at six months ahead or a year ahead, I have no data of which to say, yes, they are six months ahead or 12 months ahead. So they could have been, but Mm. you know what it's like. You've You've got to have evidence for every judgment that you make. And so that was, I found that really hard in the first couple of years. Could I say that that was six months ahead because I believed they were? when I hadn't actually given them assessment to demonstrate that, like that was a hard one for me in those first couple of years. And you know what, as a young teacher or as a new teacher, you are more likely to be pulled up on that by parents. hundred percent. Than you are as a more experienced teacher. Mm-hmm. Did you find, and that's so hard. Did, that, mm-hmm. did they know you were a new teacher considering you came in as a mature age? Yeah, so um, the interesting thing is is that I actually ended up with a job at the school that my children went to. So, yes, (laughs) they knew I was brand spanking new. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so they knew I I was new, 
It was it was very interesting time that first year. Mm-hmm. I was the only graduate teacher at the school that year. Uh, it's funny. I was chatting to um, my best friend at school, who who happened to be my mentor. I was talking to him on the weekend, and the funny thing was too was like my husband was the school council president. Okay. Um, <laughs> right, okay. So very well known. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he. When when my my mentor when he found out that he was going to be mentoring me he had these preconceived ideas because oh my god it's the wife of the school council president yep 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 you know whereas the playground mafia ah yeah like uh it was kind of taken two different ways so I had people who were incredibly supportive of me and and was just wonderful and then I had the I had the you know a bit of tall poppy syndrome happen mm-hmm. too which was interesting uh so what I did was I just put my head down and my bum up and I worked so hard in that first year because I thought you know what I'm probably going to have to prove myself here more than I would have had to if I'd got a job anywhere else but I did I know that parents will come in and seek me out because they know that my kids have been through the school and they know that my kids have been through the local high school and they know that I um, have experienced all of that and I know what it feels like as a teacher and I know what it feels like as a parent and that I would have empathy for them. So mm-hmm. it swings and roundabouts at the yeah. end of the day. Um, yeah. yeah, but it was, a, it was an interesting first year. So tell me about the decision to teach at the school your kids were at yeah. and that you had such a huge community investment in. So why did you decide to do that? Do you know what? I think a part of the reason that I became a teacher in the first place was actually because of the community at that school. I couldn't fault them. I just thought mm. that they were wonderful people to be around. I was really pleased that that, that was the school that we'd chosen for um, our children. And I... I funny like towards the end of the dip ed you know when people start to get their jobs and um, yeah <laughs> and it, it becomes a bit it's of a competition time. Yeah, it's quite awkward yeah, yeah. Uh, especially when you yes. go up against each other <laughs> mm, as well yeah. and I had applied I'd applied for one like quite far away from where we, we are and I'd interviewed there and and I didn't hear back because there had been an appeal process didn't hear back from them for quite some time. But during that time while I was waiting, I thought about it realistically and I thought, you know what, the year that that I started teaching, my daughter was in grade three and my son was in grade six. And I thought, I don't want to be too far away from them. And I know that my first year of of teaching will be intense where wherever I end up, it'll be a big year. So I really didn't want to be very far away. So I kind of, I made my I made my selection quite small. I decided that I was just going to apply yeah. for, for local schools. And um, mm-hmm. and I, I actually, I think in the course of two days, I had interviews at three different ones in our area. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. But then I remember talking to our principal, who is my boss to this day, and, and I said, you know, I'll throw my hat in the ring. There's no harm in that. Yeah. And I did and and I'm actually really thankful that I did because I yeah. even though I had those challenges in the first year, I was surrounded by these people I admired so much to start oh, off with. That's nice. And they've become lifelong friends to me, but to be surrounded by people who I admired, it just made going to work every day such 
a joy and a privilege and I loved it. And I guess for me too, some things, you know, the school culture and community and things like that, I could just slide mm. into because I already knew it all. Yeah. You know, even finding resources and stuff like that, the things that you might take for granted a little bit, those things, that that part was was easy for me. Yeah. When I decided to go for a job, I wanted to be far away because I was 23, just turned 23, and I was teaching year 11, so I was like five, six years older than these kids. And, you know, I was still young and I was still going out and I did not want to be bumping into these kids. I've now moved closer to school because I don't want to be that far away. It doesn't matter if the kids see me out doing the shopping because I've got two kids with me. I'm not in that sort of life anymore. So I can see how it just yeah. makes so much more sense to be within that community. Yeah. And, I mean, it's funny, like you say, going out shopping and stuff like that, like even, you know, if I go up the street, I make sure I've got my good tracksuit pants on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. Yeah. Because <laughs> that one day that you don't care will be that day that you bump into half a dozen kids. <laughs> and worse for high school because they're the ones serving you at the cash register All and they're true. the ones... <laughs> Yeah, they're the ones on, you know, actually working. So, yeah, you do. Good tracksuit pants, 100%. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me about, so we've really only about two or three years difference in terms of experience. So how has your beliefs and morals and values around teaching, how have they shifted in that time? And what's your priority as a teacher now? Do you know, I I don't think my priority has changed very much. I think that Mm. relationships come first always and Mm -hmm. I think that you know as we've we've talked through this and and my experiences and the things that I've done before teaching and around teaching have all been about well-being and welfare and and Mm -hmm. self-care and things like that and that was always my priority Mm -hmm. and to this day it is still my priority I am blessed with a, a group a room full of of children every year and and if I can support them and guide them and nurture them and create somewhere safe for them, somewhere where they feel comfortable and confident and and can grow as learners Mm. and as people, then I've done my job. I think so much of that, I am with you 100%, but so much of that came from becoming a mum before that I would show those things but in different ways. So I would show that I cared by trying to get you the result that you wanted to get. Yeah. And I would push you to make sure that you got into the course that you wanted, whereas now I show that care very differently. And I'm wondering how having children and having your two specific children Mm. has impacted you as an educator. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think that maybe before I had kids I wasn't ready to be a teacher. I, Mm -hmm. you know, I grew up, um, I actually um, emigrated with my family when I was six years old from the UK. So all of my Mm -hmm. extended family are over there. So I grew up Mm -hmm. without a lot of kids, surrounded by a lot of kids and especially younger kids because I'm the oldest of all of my cousins. My sister and I, you know, we had our friends around us and things like that, but I really didn't grow up with that, you know, the the different age, ages and having, and having big groups of, of kids around me. So I don't I don't know that I would have been a good teacher before I was a mum, to be quite honest. I don't know. Maybe yeah. I would. But, yeah, I think yeah. becoming a mum for me 
well, and for everyone is life-changing, obviously, and Mm -hmm. my two children are complete opposites as learners and, uh, you know, personality, they they get along so beautifully. I love Mm. to listen to them and to watch them banter with each other and, and mm-hmm. so I have um, a son who's now 21 and a, a daughter who is 18. And that's my two. Like Liam's quite a nurturer. Actually, both of them are. But Liam has dyslexia and he has always struggled with learning and he has a little bit of working mm-hmm. memory deficit as well. But he is incredible with anything hands-on. He's very much a kinesthetic mm-hmm. learner. So yeah. I... I did a lot of research around dyslexia. I helped him out as much as I could. He even had to to have speech therapy when he was younger. He had one of those tongue ties that wasn't corrected until he was almost three. So he had his own language. So, and Mm -hmm. hearing problems like, you know, so that poor kid, he was dealt lots of things (laughs) early on. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, he showed so much resilience and and he learned in different ways. And so, yeah, so I learned to be able to help him. And then my daughter is the opposite. She's highly academic, but she's also incredibly creative. She can be a perfectionist and she mm. can also get mm-hmm. highly anxious. So, yep. um, you know, so again, you know, this is me learning how to come up with strategies and tricks and tools and stuff to help her too. So um, I think that through both of those experiences with with both of my kids, you know, those are, again, two areas that, you know, is all mm-hmm. about supporting students, uh, you know, those ones who struggle and in different ways. So it might be, you yeah. know, they struggle academically. It might be that they struggle socially or mentally. Um, but, you know, I guess also with Pop, you know, I come home and, and my kids who are my high flyers, I'll say to her, hey, you know, such and such did this or this and what do you think if I gave them this to do? And she, she, you know, she will chat with me about it and go, yeah, you could do this or you could do this. And, you know, it's really yeah. it's lovely, lovely to be able to share yeah. that. I love that you've mentioned perfectionism because I don't think we talk about that very often and I don't think that we speak about it well because to be a perfectionist looks one way in a classroom and looks something very different, I think, at home. Oh, yes. So can you talk to me about that? Because I think that we praise perfectionists a lot because they are the ones sitting up the front doing the right thing. They're not difficult. But there is that internalised anxiety constantly about failure and not doing it properly. Mm-hmm. What did you learn through your daughter? I learned to support her as best Mm. as I could in fact in in some ways I almost treated that very similarly to the way I did Liam when it was things like you know like their novels and things like this like I read the year 12 the English novels and the literature ones last year uh, purely so that you know we could sit down and have a conversation about them so if that was Mm -hmm. a way for her to be able to get her thoughts together or maybe hear a different perspective from me, but for her, she needs to be able to gather everything and she needs to have her evidence mm. before she can move on. Mm. And I think for her and I to be able to bounce off each other and talk about those things, that actually helped for her to then be able to categorise things the way that she needed to. You're right, it does, it looks very different in the classroom to the way 
It does mm. at, at home. And I know that I've had lots of students who, you know, the parents will say, you get one version and we get a very yeah, different version. version because they just, they try yep. so hard all day to do the right mm-hmm. thing and, mm-hmm. and to look like they're doing the right thing and to sound like they're doing the right thing. And then they go home and they just can't cope anymore. And that's where they just yep. unleash. I don't think perfectionism, perfectionism is a blessing. I think it's a curse. It's so interesting because I think, well, I was young like you. I, I was 425 when I started prep. And so socially for me, that piece was very difficult. I didn't understand the hierarchy of socialization and things like that. And so I would try and mimic what everyone else is doing because it's like I felt like other people had the answers to a game I didn't or had the rules to the game I couldn't play. I didn't get it. Mm. And there was a lot of like popularity at school, which I still I still don't understand popularity. I've spoken about that before. I'm kind of like, I don't get it. Yeah. Just everyone just be happy. I don't understand. Anyway, <laughs> but I would be like that too. I would put it all, I would hold it all together all day, mm. all day. And then I would come home and my mum and dad just got this emotional mess when I got home because I couldn't hold it in any longer. Mm. And so there's so many ways that that manifests. And when you're praised constantly, for being perfect and doing the right thing, well, what message does that send and how do you unravel that at home? Mm, Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? And I think, you know, we are guilty of, like you said, of praising it and, you know. Of course. Yeah. It makes our lives easier as teachers if they're doing the right thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. They're the ones that don't give you any issues, you know. Behaviourally they're doing the right thing, they're getting their work done, but you know, they've got this little battle going on in their head and it's so hard. And, you know, there are so many kids who are actually needing to reach out and see psychologists and things these days. And, and you know, mm-hmm. I mean, perfectionism is just one of those reasons. I think going back to previously when we were talking about lockdown and stuff like that, like the impact of our yeah. big one last year has made a massive, massive effect on mental health of our students yep like huge we were talking at school about the fact that there's also this lack of community and the social piece is missing especially at our juniors sevens eights and nines there's something missing that I've never realized was just innately there before but it's not there Mm. and it's teaching the respect again and the work ethic again and how to work together socially and you know a lot of our boys especially they would get work done so that it was ticked off and so it was marked off and the parents got a tick and it was all done and so they looked like they were doing all the right things this quality of work was so low because they just wanted to get it out and then they would play computer games all day super isolated Mm -hmm. but you know parent and fair enough parents had work to do it was a very hard time for everybody but it meant that the quality of work is lacking. They're not that interested. They want to go and play a game by themselves. And so there's so many things that have to be redeveloped that you just don't even understand that that's happened yeah. until you're back in the classroom and you're like, oh, my goodness. Stamina. Like mm. that's I, I'm like just flabbergasted by the lack of stamina yeah. for learning. And I think you're right. It's because they, they just did so many things that they could just tick off and the debt. Then yeah. the detail is not in there that, that you would expect in a classroom. And so, mm-hmm. yes, the kids, are, they're struggling with stamina, they're struggling with focus, they're stu- struggling with self-regulation, they're struggling with collaboration, yeah. they're struggling with socialisation, like all of those things. And it is, it's just like 
starting all over again. And, you know, and this week I'm going to say feels a little bit like that too, you know, after, yeah. after two weeks yeah. of being back at home, it's like, oh, just had them where I wanted them. <laughs> yeah. And I was chatting to my year 12s and a lot of them, I don't want to use the word, but I'm going to, it's like a trauma response to what happened to last year in that the notifications of, you know, teams and compass and whatever, they turn them all off. Mm because they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it. And so they turned all of their notifications off so that they checked when they felt like it. And most times I just didn't check at all. And so you think you're getting stuff out to them and they're not even seeing it. And this is year 12. Yeah. You know, and it's a really, I've got to go back and chat to them about what we're going to do. Because when I left in 2016, we would have like a, a cohort Facebook page and you could see how many people would look at all the posts. And it was the entire cohort, every post, the whole cohort had, had watched. Mm. Now we're getting 10, 12 of a cohort of 250 kids looking yeah. at some of the content that we're putting up there. They don't want to do it. And something's happened. It's too much digital saturation, mm. isn't it? You know, I mean, they're for us to expect them to be doing all their learning that way when that that is how they're doing their socialising, it is how they are spending Mm. their leisure time, they are Mm. scrolling on social media or they're playing games or, yeah, you know, it's like it's just it's another screen. And we couldn't know. It's like social media. Like we don't still really know what impact it's having yet. Mm. We're not quite there. Like There's still not enough information and we've now gone through this year. You could never know what impact that was going to have and I still don't think we fully know. No. We're still kind of trying to navigate our way out of it, but we don't fully know. And, I mean, the likelihood of having snap lockdowns and things again, I mean, who knows? Mm. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, obviously the kids are getting onto all these different, like, social media and the games and things like this yeah. at a younger and a younger age too. You know, yeah. what impact is that? having like I actually feel blessed that neither of my kids through their own choice actually got into social media until they were about 14 yeah and I'm very thankful for that because of the the things that you know that I have seen from the kids the age that that I teach over the last few years and yeah this (laughs) they're not ready for it no no Mm. let's talk about you as a teacher Mm -hmm. who are you as a teacher how would you describe yourself (laughs) This is a hard question. (laughs) Um, I think I am someone that the kids can rely on as a teacher. I'm someone who will, I will push them because my expectations are high, but I think that probably Mm -hmm. the most important thing that I need to develop with my kids at the beginning of the year is that mutual respect and Mm-hmm. I think like I was saying before about having a, a a safe space, a space where the kids feel like mm-hmm. they have a voice and they fit, can feel comfortable and confident to to do amazing things and to make mistakes because, you know, both are equally mm-hmm. important in learning. I think as a teacher that I am flexible and that I continually evolve I thought you were going to say pivot then. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I think I think um, I myself, I feel like I am a lifelong learner and I will, mm-hmm. whenever something new pops up, I will do the research. I will 
you know, I'll pop on Insta and I'll ask someone how they've done something or yeah. I'll go and do learning walks at another school. And I think, you know, like I know when you spoke to Nathan earlier in the year, you know, he said that we actually shared a professional practice day. So I actually got to go up and yeah. and spend the morning with him and then he came down and spent the afternoon with me. And, yeah. You know, to be able to see different schools and the way that they do things and be able to bring some of those things back, I think that I'm – I'm a bit of a sponge. I like to to draw in information from lots of different places and and make sure that, you know, I'm evolving for the betterment of my kids at the end of the day and for the school, I mm. think, too. It's funny. Yeah. I asked a few of my colleagues this question, who what they thought that <laughs> I was as a teacher because, you know, they're the ones that spend the most time with me. And, um, yeah, the first graduate that I mentored she said to me her number one thing was you never do anything half-assed <laughs> mm. yeah so yep. but it was interesting because the things that she said were the things that I probably think of my myself as well she said you know that I've always got my my students well-being in mind and that is definitely you know on the top of my priorities and that I have time for my students you know I don't know how many times there's been a lunchtime and someone's coming oh you know can I just have a talk to you for a minute and you're thinking I've got five minutes to go to the toilet and get a drink sure what do you mean Mm -hmm. (laughs) you do you do that because they need you yeah Yeah. and and so that's what we're there for she did give me one word in capital letters and she said that I was fun. So I, I would oh, like to think, amazing. yeah, I would like to think that I'm fun most of the time with my kids, probably not all the yeah. time because sometimes, you know, you've got to be, you know, straight down the yeah, line and you've got to course. set your expectations and all the rest. But I love having fun with them. That's, you know, mm. that's, is that not one of the greatest things about being a teacher is that it helps to keep you young? Yes. Yes, and I definitely found that coming back after maternity leave because I was kind of in that for so long um, and, I'd, and I'd grown up with the kids and then I left for four years and I came back. I was like, oh, I've, I've missed out on some stuff, you know, and I've got to now go back into that culture again because I've sort of been out of it for a little while. Yeah, yeah definitely. Probably I would say as um, something that's a little bit detrimental is I can be a bit of a workaholic. And um, mm. I am definitely guilty of working way too many hours. And that's just because I like to do my best. Can you say that? I still don't know how we do that. Out I don't know. <laughs> the whole issue with the job is the fact that we have to work at home in order to do ultimately like the performance mm. during the day. And if you don't have your prep done at home, then you can't teach. Mm. so it's it's just a hard one I'm, I'm the same I work a lot too and yeah I'm in the classroom three days and I would still do work most days even though I'm only in the classroom yeah, three days so, because so it's just so how do you true. get it done otherwise yeah mm. I want to talk about your first leadership role was mm-hmm. which was the yeah. kids matter role what was that experience like oh I loved that I loved it so much was my second year of teaching and I guess you know like talking earlier and saying how I worked really really hard in that first year and I put my head down and my bum up and I I I tried really hard to prove myself and I obviously proved myself in some kind of a way yeah the beginning of the the next year there was a group of us that went to the first kids matter professional learning day and our AP came and sat next to me and she goes oh by the way I'm gonna get you to lead this and I'm like okay 
(laughs) (laughs) Sure. But then, um, yeah, I went to a second day with her and they showed us a video of, I think it was a a Scottish school doing a lip dub, which is probably all the kinds of things that you see on TikTok these days. Yeah, you know, yeah. like it's a, like a music video that where they lip sync to it, and um, and it was all about creating a a whole school culture. And I watched that, and I turned to her and I said, "We can do that." And she's like, "All right then." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I came back and I started to implement the first component of Kids Matter, which was all about creating a positive school culture. And it took us six months. I got the kids, the fives and sixes, highly involved in it. So we used to do on a a Wednesday afternoon, we used to do these rotations of four different subjects. So the four different teachers each would take a different subject. And I did health and well-being. And so I decided to use that lesson as the one where we would actually plot out what this lip dub was going to look like across the whole school. And uh, so each different group that I had was in charge of a different year level of the school and they just came up with the most incredible things so like the group that had the preps they should be out in the playground and they should be you know playing hopscotch and on the playground and coming down the slide and you know just running around and playing in the sandpit and all the rest of it and um and we filmed that part and it's incredible they are all yeah. in the playground you've got little you know, Ring of Rosie going on and hopscotch and we've got like all of our lip syncers and it goes from one kid to the next and How and cool. then the next yeah, it was really cool. And then we had a group look after the one yeah. and twos and they did something similar and in that area they had representations of all the different like lunchtime groups that we had in there. And so, you know, there was chess club and yoga club and all these different kinds of clubs that were shown. The three fours then showed us like the, the school pets and things like that and we went through their classrooms so that we could see, you know, what the different classrooms look like. And then the five sixes took us like out into the basketball court and then we had the whole school there. Wow. This is where I got some of the grade five girls, I think it was at the time, choreographed that bit and we actually had the whole school come onto the basketball court and do this whole dance all together and we had a, a one of our dads was a cameraman and he actually came and filmed it on the day. Like I said, it took six months to get the whole thing together, lots of rehearsals, lots of, of different yeah. things. But, you know, even to the end, you know, they were making a giant, the letters of the school, and, you know, it was all uh, sped up to, to make the letters. Oh, of yeah, the yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it, it became our calling card and it was something that, yeah, every single person in the school was involved in. We even had a, like a... Um, a premiere night where parents came and watched it and then they could buy yeah. the, the video and, and all that kind of stuff. But that that was how I began my role as a leader, I guess, <laughs> yeah. yeah, by doing something big. And I think that from running the Bands Festival for years, I was actually quite used to doing things on a yeah. big scale. So to me it wasn't daunting. I knew I could do it. And it was fun, you know. This is my this is my right brain growing going crazy, like <laughs> all yeah. of those things yeah, yeah. together. Um, and I had a student teacher that year too, who actually ended up. She's actually ended up as a secondary teacher, who's a a drama and dance teacher, and she just thought that that was the the most awesome placement she could possibly have. So, yeah. yeah but Kids Matter was all about the mental wealth and uh, health and well being of of students. So it was there were four components to it and it took us about four years, four or five years 
no, actually, I'm going to say five or six years to get through them all. But it was about starting big and coming down to the individual students. So the positive school community was the first one. And then the second one was all about social emotional learning. So that was then when we um, began to implement a whole school social emotional learning program in the school, which we used bounce back at that time. And then the third one was about working with parents and carers. And then the last one was is about um, helping children with mental health issues. So that's coming down to using your triple SOs and things like that and, and outside help. So, yeah, so we had to go through each one of these components and then we had to apply for accreditation and, um, and our school is one of the schools in Australia that is a Kids Matter school, even though Kids Matter doesn't exist as a, a, a program or a, a framework anymore. But um, that was, it was a, big journey but it was incredibly mm. satisfying and I learned yeah. so much along the way it was incredible the biggest issue with things around student well-being is that it's very tokenistic it's you know we've got a day that we showcase that we look after mm. our children but it's one day or it's one activity or it's one assignment it seems to me like that was such an immersive program that actually made you shift yeah pedagogy yep is that exactly a part of what we do and even now this year in in my role this year I'm sort of starting to to mix up the social emotional learning lessons across the school now because there's so many other things to think about now like respectful relationships and making sure resilience Mm -hmm. is in there more so than it ever has been before and and we've incorporated the zones of regulation Mm -hmm. in there because I did last year doing so much research on self-regulation as a part of the the student voice agency and leadership role that I've got so the social emotional learning is 100% embedded into, it's embedded into our timetable every week. So every class runs at least a half an hour to 45 yeah. minute lesson a week. That included every class this year set up a zones of regulation um, area in their classroom. So the kids come in and they actually, like in my class, they have icy pole sticks and we've got different colored cups. They come in, they put their, their stick with their name into the cup of the colour of the whichever zone that they're in. So a blue zone is if you're tired or bored or non-committal, just really not feeling it. The yellow zone is heightened, so it could be excited, but it could also be anxious. The green zone is like good to go for mm. learning. And then the red zone is when you're really hitting, you know, getting angry, I'm frustrated, you know, I'm about to explode kind of thing. And so we've unpacked that a lot this year so far. And it's great because it's colours are a universal language and it's something we needed to find yeah. something that was going to work just as well for the junior kids as for the senior kids because, you know, you need five-year-olds yeah. to be able to articulate the way that they feel. And We've had quite a few families who've wanted to take this home and work with it at home. So, yeah, so that that conversation about, you know, what zone are you in is something that we bring into every day when we're teaching. And so, yeah, so I would not say that social-emotional learning at our school is tokenistic by any stretch of the um, imagination. Mm. It is absolutely embedded in everything that we do. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that's like I've started to do primary school tours and that was something mm. that I was looking for. It wasn't about, like I took my husband who hasn't set foot in a classroom since he was at high school. And he's like, that looks really good. I'm like, they yeah. said it's one day. That's, that's I don't want one day. I want to see where it's in the curriculum. And so those were the things that I was looking for. And I think that 
you know, we can, as teachers, we know what it looks like dressed up and we know yeah. what it looks like when it's real. Mm. And, you know, you want that yeah. stuff to be real and authentic yeah. and actually going on. Yeah, and it's one of those things that you can't do overnight. It's it's no. a process. It, you know, it can take two or three years to embed something like that authentically. I find sometimes too at high school, oftentimes we get funding for teachers to work on a project for a year or for us to implement something for one year and there's never enough commitment from government at times to see those things through because they are they are they're a huge commitment and if you sign up for something you have to see it through and you have to have opportunity to reflect and to sort of rework if it doesn't work because you know what it's like you teach something once and you're like okay I did that well yeah. that didn't quite stick I'm going to do that better and you need that time and you need investment yeah to make those yeah. things happen 100% that is so so true and I think um like yeah like you're saying you need to you might do it and you might do it okay but you do need to reflect and you need to have those professional conversations yeah. as well like how did you do it I did it like this you know this didn't work for me what worked for you and um and we've been having that professional conversation at school um based around class meetings because this was something that we brought in as a part of student voice agency and leadership so yeah a, a class meeting is a meeting that's run wholly by the students with minimal teacher interaction and it's about them coming up with ideas to do with their learning or in the classroom room or within the school community and it's not about the silly things it's not about oh I want to go outside and you know have a brain break every 10 minutes and shoot some hoops yeah. or something like that or I want every maths lesson to mm. involve lollies or because <laughs> you know if you left it up to them they would probably say those things yeah. but yeah. it's about yeah, us um, yeah you know giving this is giving them like an authentic voice about their learning and and this was something that a fantastic teacher who when she was a graduate she brought it over from a, a school that she'd been working at and so we were using it in the the grade five and six classrooms and it was working quite well but we knew that this was such a an easy way actually to get voice and agency into the classroom and for the kids to feel heard as well if you acted upon it I mean this is the other thing this is where you don't want that to be tokenistic is that yeah. you know they need to see that you're doing something about what they're yeah. discussing and what they're passionate about so we at the beginning of the year asked all of the teachers to try it and you know with different success so at the beginning of term two in a staff meeting I said okay well what are our let's reflect on this like what are our celebrations and and what do we wonder or, or what do we need some more help with? And so it did come up that, you know, perhaps it needs to be a little bit more structured and there's a little bit more teacher intervention in the younger years. And so from there I yeah. went back to my kids and I asked my kids, I said, what do you think it should look like in the different year levels? Because, you know, grade sixes are great at being able to, to give you ideas for those kinds of things. They, yeah. they really are. And then, you know, in the, in the student voice PLC that we have at school, we talked about, you know, like what the challenges were in the different year levels. And so then I went back, I went out and did some research around it. I found some some different papers and spoke to schools and teachers that had done them in theirs. And I've just finished creating like a continua from prep through to grade six for us to be able to use at school where it's got that gradual release model from, you know, the teachers being quite involved mm. in prep to in grade 
six is it'll pretty much be me popping my head in or you know having my say if I absolutely need to so yeah it is it's it's so important for you to have the time to be able to have those conversations professionally to be able to have those conversations with the students because it's about them Mm -hmm. and to be able to get their Mm. input as well as the teacher's input and then everybody all the stakeholders have Mm. ownership and then that's when it's going to work I see student agency coming up as like this big kind of catchphrase at the moment and I believe in it so much and I think it's so important but again like the social emotional unless we are acting upon as unless we are allowing students to feel as though their voice actually translates into something actionable it's all again tokenistic and I would Mm. say the same thing about teachers teachers really want to be heard so you know if we get a program yeah if we get a program that we think we have to sort of just troll out if we don't have any opportunity to refine it or to give feedback or to say what works and Mm. what doesn't work the investment is so low and it's just so interesting isn't it that you know we start to see how important agency is for students but we also need teachers to be just as invested. And I think that all of these programs need teacher insight as well, rather than, oh, this is what we're going to do. This is going to look good. We all need to, as you say, to have every stakeholder involved is what's going to get the most progress. Mm, it's so true. And I think you're right. Like you're saying that student agency, there's definitely, I know so many schools with their reviews in the last couple of years, they have all got goals towards improving improving student voice agency and leadership you know you you be hard mm. hard past to find a school that doesn't have a goal in that kind of a, a domain but yeah where is the staff agency mm. this year i've just seen on our review one of our goals is well-being staff well-being which i've never seen before mm. we've got a new principle and it's about what we're doing to invest in ourselves as educators yeah. I'm like, that's cool. It is cool, yeah. isn't it? So I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is yeah. and this is again, this is where then we need to ask the staff what we what they need mm-hmm. for well being. Because it's I know that like I suggested at the beginning of the year that we have a um have a, a meeting free week. I don't oh, and we have yeah. we've got one in for each week of this term. But I I don't know if it's helpful or not. <laughs> because some mm. some people will work better if they can meet regularly or they they have got those allocated times for different things. And I'm reflecting on this now as, you know, thinking I just made that decision and I actually didn't ask anyone if that's what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. We have a, it's one meeting a term that is run by Staff Wellbeing, the Staff Wellbeing Association, and you can choose what you'd like to do. You have to obviously be there. You can't go home. But they run meditation. They run walking. They run tech support if you're struggling with things like that. You can have your own time. You can have small group planning time. And all you have to do is sign up to whatever you'd like to do. And I signed up for just private work because I needed to get things done. And I got some feedback that sometimes the people organising that are a bit disappointed when people sign up to private work because they're like, oh, we're running these walking clubs and meditation and yoga and Pilates and all these different things to try and get people to get involved. I said, but for me, if I can get my work done, then I'm free to do that when I get home. And it's just that choice. Yeah. And at this time in my life, getting the work done at school 
is so helpful for me, mm. you know, but at another time in my life, I would have probably loved to have signed up to a Pilates class. And it's just that choice, I think. And I, I really think they're doing that very well. And that's new since I've come back. Just I once really like I look those ideas. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. Mm. I'll, I'll send you actually like the kinds of things that they make available because they're the ones I can think of off the top, off the top of my head. But it's really, it's just choice. Mm. Staff love choice. Yeah. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. so true. So true. Yeah, yeah. Like, just like kids do. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the student leadership structure that you have at your school. You are obviously starting to talk about it a little bit with me in regards to student voice, but how is it structured? I love our leadership, our student leadership program. So it was actually a teacher who was our previous leading teacher many years ago. He, When he came, he brought um, this program that he had been doing at his previous school. So every single grade six student has a leadership role. So we have school captains, sports captains, you know, they're the ones that most schools usually have. Then we've got mm-hmm. our junior school council and we've got our student action team. Then we have five other ones who actually will teach the grade one, two. So we've got environment captains, computer captains, performing arts captains, visual arts captains, and wellbeing captains. And so on a Thursday afternoon for the last 45 minutes, every single child at our school is involved in the leadership program. So the preps buddy up with the grade fives and the grade fives run activities with them. So that's the grade fives learning how to be leaders and they are the the prep buddies. Mm. So that goes on for those 45 minutes. Uh, At the same time, the grade one twos are broken into those five different groups and there are three or four of the grade sixes who are these different captains and they uh, run an activity based around that. So our computer captains might be teaching the kids how <laughs> how to turn the computers on and off in yeah. grade one and two because that's a skill that, yeah. you know, more, they know how to swipe things but they don't know as much about actual computers. Yeah. So yep. it might be something like that. Yeah. It might be doing some typing. It might be doing some simple coding or something like that but that's what the – the computer captains yep. will do the well-being. Where to save captains. a file. Yeah, yeah, how to save a file, yep. exactly. The well-being yep. captains are doing mindfulness or colouring in or breathing or yoga or something like that with a group. Oh, actually, no, there's junior sports captains as well. So they're running um, little tabloid sports with a, a group of children. The environment captains have the kids down at our garden and they're um, working mm. on, you know, whether it's weeding or planting or and then once things are grown, then they do cooking with them. That's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. So you've got all of those. And then the sports captains, they take the three fours for CPEP, which is sports. And so they teach them the skills and they run the games. And then we have the junior school council who works with one of the grade six teachers and they are like our philanthropic the school, so they run any special days or any fundraising or anything like that. And then the student action team, which I started but have passed on to one of our team leaders in 3-4, they are the ones who, they're like the executive committee of the student, of basically mm-hmm. student voice for the school. So they they will run a normal meeting with just them and they will run it like we would run a PLC. They actually use the same agenda and the same minute documentation that the teachers oh, use. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's teaching them those real skills, you know, like there's a, um, a president, a vice president and publicity and treasurer 
on there. And then every three weeks we'll have one representative from each class and they all come together and they will either, they'll either bring up the things that have come up in their class meetings that they would like to see whole school or there might be something specific that we want to get their voice on. So recently we had a buddy bench um, built in the school and we wanted them to come up with a plaque to go around with it. So they actually came up with the wording for it and Mm. and actually named the bench itself. And then um, more recently we're looking at, you know, we were talking about um, planning documents and stuff like that earlier. We're, We're looking at creating a a planning template that every team will use and we're actually getting student feedback on what they think a lesson should look like. So um, this is where then they're actually talking about their learning. So, yeah, so we have that that going on. All of these things are all happening all at the same time. I love this so much and I now need to talk to you about transition because mm-hmm. I know you've done transition between kinder to prep as well as year six to year seven. Yeah. I hear all of this mm. and I think how incredible. I don't know if high schools are following through on a lot of those things. You develop these really, you know, passionate leaders by the time they finish primary school and they must feel like they have so many skills and they go into high school where they're all splintered off into different areas. Teachers don't know who they are very well. It's all about following suit in terms of what this new high school wants how do we do transition better where we keep what primary schools have done so well and build upon without scaling back? Yeah, that's a good question. I've thought about how transition looks at either end and mm. I know that we, the network that I work in, we all the schools work quite closely. So our feeder secondary school we actually in term three we do a um a right like a writing moderation piece we actually moderate with the year seven teachers so as far as mm. academics are concerned i think that we're really starting to get somewhere with that transition in that they're yep. beginning to understand our kids as learners before they get to them and their strengths mm. and weaknesses and things like that but yeah when we've put so much time and so much effort into these kinds of aspects mm. is, is this then cross-curricular where we need to be doing learning walks from primary to secondary and vice versa so that we're actually being able to see like I know a couple of years ago when I had a, a graduate teacher working with me in grade six the year after her first year we went and had a one of our professional practice days at our local high school so we could see what an English lesson looked like and we could see what a maths lesson looked yeah. like and we could check in with our kids and see how they transitioned and that was I found that to be a really beneficial day in many ways for, mm-hmm. for us to then be able to come back and look at the way that we do transition and the things that we need to set the kids up for and then we like I've had a couple of the English teachers have come and and spent some time in our class but yeah but that that is all the academics we need we need to do that with the other things I think the academics is the least difficult thing to do I think all those other things are really challenging and I'm at a quite a large high school we have oh five six seven feeder primary schools coming to mm. us and so there's no way really that we could do that kind of intensive transition with every single primary school mm. and whether it would be effective I'm not sure but it's I just 
something happens that, you know, these year sevens, they come in after feeling so confident and comfortable in their primary school and they get shuffled around into these new groups, which is good for them. Mm. But we also don't know who they are. We don't get the best of them because they're still trying to figure it all out. It's a whole new model for them. And so I think all these things that you've done and you've spent so much time fostering get lost and we don't pick them up again. Mm. This is why if, if I was to create my own school, it would be a middle school. Yeah, Nathan says this too. Mm. That's exactly yeah, what we'll he talks about. In, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah well, you, know, I'll, uh, you can employ me if you like. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Think, I mean, if you think about it, like maybe from like you were saying seven, eights, nines, I would say let's put six in the mix as well. If you had a school that had those year levels, that's like the most awkward age for kids anyway. And, you know, it's, it is also that time where potentially you can start to lose some of those engaged kids too. Yeah. So if we had a school that was, you know, from 12 to 15 or 14 and you – did all of these things that I'm talking about, you know, like this leadership model, if you did lots of inquiry or problem-based learning or, you know, let's foster all the student voice and agency in those year levels where we need to try and keep the engagement, I think that would Mm. work. The hardest thing I find as a high school teacher is that ATAR score at the end. Oh, well, it is because you you really do have to teach to the curriculum, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, and I was listening to a podcast the one that was on from last week and you were talking about this and, you know, that these things need to change. Like the way kids are marked oh, yeah. at the end, it needs to change. It's a huge systemic mm. thing. And as I said to you, like prior to having my own children, I thought the best thing I could do for my students, especially at that senior level, was to get them the result that would get them into their course. Mm. I now don't have as strong a belief in that, but at the same time, I'm, I'm so much older. My perspective is so much different. They still see it the same way. If I get the score, then I'll be okay. I'm like, mm. Mm, the retention rate at uni isn't great because if you guys just work towards the test and work, to, work towards the ATAR score, the skills aren't there. And so mm-hmm. obviously the skills need to be taught, but where do we measure that? And if we want to teach skills, how do we show them that that's important when it's taking away time towards study towards their exam. I know. You know it's such a hard one. It is. It's such a hard it? one because they can't see it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true because, you know, life is not a three-hour test, mm-hmm. yet we put so much pressure on that. And, you know, like, like I said, having had a daughter that's just gone through to see the pressure yeah. that they put themselves under, it's huge. It's huge and it's not necessarily indicative of what you do after. No. Something does happen between that year eight and year 10 bracket, though, because mm. I always taught seven eights and twelves pretty much. I kind of missed that middle band for a while. They're, they're very hard to teach sometimes. But I loved your yeah. sevens and eights because they were very excited. And nines and tens, I mean, there's a whole heap of research around the fact that that's that, you know, the time that they're finding their own identity and separation from family and there's a lot going on hormonally and things for them. But... Mm. They just aren't that interested at school at that time and it's very hard to bring them back in. And when they do get back in, it's all towards academia. And so what happens is they want to be perfect. 
by the time they get back in and, and invested in schools, they don't want to be creative anymore. They don't want to give things a go. They want to be perfect because they want mm. a score. And so you yeah, get very little creativity from senior students. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? So, you know, you think about what I've said that I want in, in my classroom mm. and the things that, you know, like it's like, yes, I would like you to try your hardest, but also it's okay to make mistakes. When they get to that age, they don't think it's okay to make mistakes anymore. And they're told it's not okay because if they don't get a good score mm. or their SAC results are low and they know that they're getting ranked all the rhetoric that goes in it's very hard it's very hard because you just want them to not worry about it but you know that they can't they can't no that's right mm. and you've seen it yeah, yeah. you've had two kids go through did you see yeah. a change in them as they went through high school in terms of them wanting to make mistakes and being okay to fail I think because of the personalities of my two Liam was also always a bit like it'll be all right you know he, he tried not to put too much pressure on himself, actually. Yeah. And it, if I think about Pop, I think she always has. So mm. it wasn't too much of a shift for her because I think that she'd actually always done that. Mm. That being said, I reckon I've got two pretty amazing young adults these days, you know, like mm. I touch wood, I didn't have a lot of issues with them mm. as teenagers. So people do have real issues and and do see that switch off or that maybe even that rev up when Mm. they're trying to like when they're trying to bump themselves up when they get to those yeah those years and you know and it it can be quite alarming can't it it can especially when they think that a score is part of their identity Mm. which is what happened well put it this way my son when he turned 18 he just finished high school and he went and got a tattoo and told me about it after yep. he'd done it. Yeah. And his tattoo said, follow no path, make your own. I like it. Yeah. And that was all about yeah. him, you know, like balking from the I'm not a number because he actually almost had I'm not a number written on there and I'm really glad he didn't because <laughs> that's kind of null and void now. But the yeah. one that he's got, you know, that's okay. But which just goes to show how much he didn't fit into it and how much he Mm. was probably trying being told that this is how it has to be and he was never going to fit into it. He's lucky he had someone supportive at home going, that's okay, because if you didn't have that, that would be very alienating. Yeah, very true. And I know, I mean, there are lots of kids now who work so hard and then they get to like a month before and they go, actually, I'm not going to sit my exams. Yeah, it happens. I've tutored students that, actually pull out of the exams at the end it's too much pressure for them so emotionally and psychologically they'd prefer to pull out than actually know what they would get as a score because then that would be evidence for them so they pull out Mm. yeah it's 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 quite detrimental to many students actually that score at the end it is and I think there's there's becoming more pathways now isn't there for them to be able to go and do what they want to do anyway. Yeah. And if you know what, you think about it and you think about what I did. I was just going to say you're the perfect kind of example. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about online. So we've connected through Instagram. Do you think mm-hmm. that we're doing enough to support our kids with the online world that they're going to be a part of as educators? Oh, do you know what? It's so tricky, isn't it? Because where do we draw the line and where is it our responsibility and where is it their parents' responsibility? Totally. 
you know, I, I know in it we I have our planning day with with the team that I work with tomorrow and I know we'll be looking at digital technologies and, and we'll be looking at online etiquette again because yeah. we've just been online for two weeks and some of those things weren't followed the way that they should be. So yeah. it's that constant reminder, like this is the way that you behave online, this is the kinds of things that you say, this is what you, this is what you don't say, you know, mm. once you've put it out there, you can't take it back. Yeah. Even things like creating passwords and stuff like that. Like I think about the detail that we go into lessons with our kids, with getting them to create strong complex seven passwords, you know, they probably yes. got more complex passwords than I have. <laughs> yeah. I think in some ways remote learning has taught them a lot of skills in that when they move on to secondary school, they're going to be able to hand in work a lot easier like there's yeah. going to be less there's going to be less groundwork for you guys because they're yeah. going to have have done that for for quite some time now but I think like we touched on this before social media there's a maturity element as well and that becomes really hard when they're exposed to so much mm-hmm. you kids in grade two and three talking about tiktok and stuff like that I mean you know yeah yeah. And I think they're learning from that, that like they go to TikTok to work out the world and societal constructs and what to value. And, I mean, the people that are creating TikToks are anybody. Mm, yep. And, you know, it, it could be that they're just doing a, following a dance or something for now, but, like, you look at the dances that they're doing and you've got, mm-hmm. you know, seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds doing them. Yep. You know, think about yep. the way that we used to dance when we were that age and it was completely- Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was going to say, I was listening to a podcast where Chrissy Teigen, do you know Chrissy Teigen? Mm-hmm. Who's like John Legend's wife. She has ultimately gotten herself into really big trouble. She was like a huge mental health advocate she'd been trolled on socials I think she's deleted her Twitter account now because of all of the trolling and she was outspoken about it and recently a tweet that she sent someone I'm going to say around eight to ten years ago has surfaced Mm. of her trolling someone and she has now lost all of her ambassadorships she's lost a lot of her revenue she had a cooking wear line that has now been dropped and this is someone who ultimately made her mark online and a silly tweet or a silly comment that she deeply regrets now and was incredibly damaging, to be fair, mm. like it was not a good thing to have done. But it was eight years ago, a very immature brain sending something impulsive without a following, she's losing her livelihood now. Yeah. And these are the things that if we don't understand that those things stick around and you've got these young children who are posting with a brain that is not fully mm. matured. This is, this is what I find really hard. Like where is the education around that? And as you say, whose responsibility is it? Because should we be piling this on to all the other curriculum that we're well, teaching? Well, that's right. I mean, I know like it is a part of our digital technologies and so I'm going to say from prep all the way through at a primary school, you will be looking at how to behave, the etiquette, all that kind of thing, you know, mm. obviously at, at age-appropriate levels for us to be teaching. So we, we yeah, are teaching yeah. those things. But you're right, like, you know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say it at all. 
because then mm-hmm. it won't bite you in the bum eight years later. And and you do find That's that right. people online will be a lot nastier than they are in real life as well, and especially yeah. young kids. Yeah, yeah, not realizing there's a person mm. behind that that page. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, obviously, there has to be a balance, and this is where whole three way relationship between the the student, the parent, and the teacher is so yeah. important. And when something like this comes up, to be able to, you know step on it straight away and to be working all together to make sure that, you know, that they learn from the experience. And and some of the lessons that they're learning at a young age are hard lessons when it comes to, to um, being online. They need to feel safe to come to a safe they adult, do. don't they, when they make a mistake or when they do something that, you know, is mm. questionable because who knows what they're looking at, who knows what their role models are online, you know, and you do need to be a safe space yeah, for them 100 percent. you do yeah and, and sometimes mm. and sometimes it is the teacher that they'll come to because they are too scared to tell mum and dad yeah. so sometimes it is us first and then yeah. it is that you know then having to relay it back so i think the responsibility mm. is all of ours really isn't it yeah but how do we know who's mm. doing what without that yeah. communication yeah so you know because there, there'd be so many assumptions mm. wouldn't there about who's doing what yeah yeah that's so true I know that each term we will put out a newsletter with what we're covering in the curriculum so then the parents know Mm. what kinds of things we are doing and because we're a a, a cyber safe school so you know there were definitely boxes that needed to be e-safe or something like that one of those One of the many ones. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, all those boxes that needed to be ticked. Yeah. But a part of that is, you know, having experts come in and talk to parents as well as talk to staff as well as talk to students. Yeah, yeah I know that we had someone, we actually had some police, I think, come and talk about uh, cyber safety to our yeah. our community a couple of years ago. So it is, it's it's about us all having a open communication for the parents to know what it is that we're teaching, but then also for them to know, you know, well, then this is where I take it from here. Definitely. I'd love to know what are some of your hopes for education in the future? You know, it's, it's like a double-edged sword technology, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we get, we're going to continue to evolve technology-wise, but I I want to see that we can still evolve as human beings and that we can still look after each other and that Mm. things like creativity can still be just as important. You know, like you look at the world and lockdowns and things like this and it's those things that are the things that have kept us all sane but also the last things to open, like, you know, theatres and things like that, you know. That's right. Sporting venues, you can go and watch some sport, but, uh, you know, it's taken a long time for theatres to reopen and stuff like that. Yet when we're all locked down in our house, we're watching videos, you know, we're watching TV shows, we're watching actors and musicians and dancers and and all of those people who are the artistic ones. I think that what I would like to see in the future is an evolution of, of all of the different ways of learning and for us to all be able to to find that thing that we are good at and be able to explore it in a safe way but also in a satisfying way. 
Like we were talking about earlier that my daughter is doing an arts and a fine art degree. Now, I don't know what she's going to do with that afterwards, but I know that right now she's loving every single moment of it. And she has already picked up some work in local council and things like that, you know, and that's through passion of teachers. And I think that if if we can maintain a teaching profession that is passionate because we are, we all are, but also that aren't drilled into the ground with administration and data and all of those kinds of things. You've got to let us do what we do best. I think that's the way that that education needs to move forward. I asked Nathan, or I think he made the comment about there's an element of teaching that is just alchemy. It just happens. And there's this real intuitive element that comes with teaching and it doesn't matter how much evidence you collate, there's something that you just know within yourself through the relationship that you build with these students and it's very hard to convey that. But you know what it is, don't you? You just There's something you just understand through the relationships you build and when you are told to collect all the data, yeah. it, it yeah. takes away from that. Yeah, it makes it clinical. Yeah. And then it doesn't it doesn't mm-hmm. become about relationships yeah. anymore. And that's like that's what you that's my core business. Yes. What I loved about what you said too, and I really hope the same, is that students feel confident and valid in whatever choice that they make and that one is not seen as more prestigious or more mm. stable than another. And I've had a student on an ex student who is an actress and a singer. And when she went in to do her career pathway, they said to her, what's your backup? And I loved it. She said, well, you wouldn't ask someone who was going to go into a nursing degree what their backup would be. And it's true because we don't value Mm. certain careers in this world. And even though you can be incredibly successful as a singer and a musician and an actress, we don't see those things as bankable. And yet some people are incredibly talented and have passion and I think it's a shame that we value certain careers and certain um, ways of living mm. and I'm hoping that we can be more yeah. open-minded yeah. and I think that's what I heard in your answer is is validating those different talents. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about it, it's when, as you were speaking then, I'm thinking, you know, if you look back over centuries, who are the people that you remember? You remember the artists, mm-hmm. you remember the composers, yeah. You remember the actresses and the singers and the, you know, there might be a few philosophers in there thrown in for good measure, but you don't remember the accountants. (laughs) Even though that's a good stable job. My dad's an accountant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, but you remember the storytellers and the entertainers, one hundred percent. And the, but also the people you create relationships mm. with. I mean, they're the people that always stick with you. The people that that got to know you and gave you yeah. time and invested yeah. in you yeah. as well. And they, you know what? They're the teachers you'll mm-hmm. remember. Totally. Yeah. All right. Last okay. question. We have been chatting for ages. It's been the best, <laughs> greatest lessons in life. What have been some of the greatest lessons that you can? impart to our audience do you know what that you don't have to be perfect I mean I think that this whole conversation has actually been about me showing you that I made lots of mistakes along the way to get to where I needed to be but my mistakes that I made along the way were little little pockets of learning and they were experiences detours right not mistakes yeah exactly detours yeah yeah and learning experiences and you know yeah, I might have been a bit slack here and there, but I got there in the end and I, I 
I had to have had a good work ethic to have got there in the end. It was just that when I was young and not ready, then then I didn't do as well, I guess, as um, yeah. As yeah. I know that probably the expectations of my parents might have been or society might have seen. But I guess my biggest lesson is that you, you don't need to know your destination straight away. It's okay if you take some detours mm. along the way. It's okay mm. if you, yeah. you know, you find those teachable or those learning moments in your life, these things that take you off on different tangents, because at the end, it's going to make you a better person. It's so funny, Lisa, because not once when I was listening to everything that you've said, did the word mistake come into my head ever. Mm. I didn't think you were talking about your mistakes at all. I thought you were just talking about the process that it took. And it's funny how we assign things to ourselves that I would never have assigned to you. I just thought, yeah, you're right. Like we need maturity sometimes or we need to make that, you know, or have that experience or we need to have that that failure sometimes Mm. in order to build the resilience. And to me, it just seemed like the journey that has led you to being the teacher that is invested in well-being, that's invested in creativity, that's invested in supporting the whole individual rather than just the academic. I think that's been the best. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it funny? This is that's me being a perfectionist and being mm-hmm. hard on myself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but so, again, I could I could say the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. I could say the same thing in through my lens of what I was hoping to have achieved and what I actually got to experience and it's just that sometimes someone else needs to see it for you yeah that's so so true thank you so much for this amazing chat and it's just been so lovely to get to know you because as I said I've seen you through Instagram and seen all your posts and you know Nathan I will say I've got to share he's he's written here too can you please ask her how she's so kind-hearted that is what he's asked of you because he has such beautiful things to say and it's been so lovely for me to actually connect with you on my own, which has been wonderful. It has. It's been such a fantastic conversation and I feel like you've um, you've taken me down memory lane in, in many, oh, many good. ways. But, good. yeah, in the best, in the best possible way and, and, you know, I think that that is like a, an epiphany for me that, that those are the lessons that, that I have learnt and it has all been little detours that have made me the person that I am now and that I continue to grow to be. But um, I absolutely love speaking with you. Thank you so much for inviting me onto the podcast. Such a pleasure.